Podcastle, episode 171, for August 23rd, 2011. The Island of Dr. Death and Other Stories, by Gene Wolfe. Rated R, contains some adult themes. Hello, and welcome back to Podcastle. I'm Dave Thompson, and today we've got a treat for you. A classic story by one of my all-time favorite authors, the master guildsman himself, Mr. Gene Wolfe. We've had a lot of fun thus far this summer between barbarians and undead communist uprisings, so we've got a more subtle thought-provoking tale for you all today. A story about an island at sea, a story of a young boy trying to find his place, a story about perceptions, a story about the ocean's magic, a story about stories. I'm insanely proud to present to you all The Island of Dr. Death and Other Stories by Gene Wolfe. Originally published in Orbit 7, edited by Damon Knight back in 1970. Gene Wolfe is considered by many one of the finest living writers of science fiction and fantasy. His work's been praised by Ursula K. Le Guin, China Mieville, Jeff Vandermeer, Orson Scott Card, Neil Gaiman, and Steve Ely who not so long ago chose to base the forum stats for members on Wolf's The Book of the New Sun. Gene Wolf's stories have been published, well, in lots of places. His most recent book is the science fiction adventure Home Fires, and his most recent short story collection is the excellent and impressive Best of Gene Wolf. All that said, I cannot recommend highly enough Mr. Wolf's astounding four-volume science fiction fantasy series, The Book of the New Sun. It's one of the most thought-provoking series of science fiction I've ever read, and Neil Gaiman said its first volume, The Shadow of the Torturer, was one of his favorite modern science fiction novels. I actually picked up the audio last year and had a blast revisiting it. And who better to read this very special story than one of our absolute favorites, the one, the only, Ben Phillips, the former master guildsman of the Pseudopod Towers, where the screams of clients never fades. Finally, I want to give a special shout-out to C.S.C. Cooney, who put us in contact with Gene Wolfe and made this one happen. Thank you, Claire. So remember, no man is an island unto himself. Enjoy the story. The Island of Dr. Death and Other Stories by Gene Wolfe Winter comes to water as well as land, though there are no leaves to fall. The waves that were bright hard blue yesterday under fading sky, today are green, opaque, and cold. If you are a boy not wanted in the house, you walk the beach for hours, feeling the winter that has come in the night, sand blowing across your shoes, spray wetting the legs of your corduroys. You turn your back to the sea, and with the sharp end of a stick found half buried, right in the wet sand, Techman Babcock. Then you go home knowing that behind you the Atlantic is destroying your work. Home is the big house on Settler's Island, but Settler's Island, so-called, is not really an island, and for that reason is not named or accurately delineated on maps. Smash a barnacle with a stone and you will see inside the shape from which the beautiful barnacle goose takes its name. There is a thin and flaccid organ which is the goose's neck and the mollusk's siphon, and a shapeless body with tiny wings. Settler's Island is like that. The Gooseneck is a strip of land down which a county road runs. 
by whim. The map makers usually exaggerate the width of this and give no information to indicate that it is scarcely above the high tide. Thus, Settler's Island appears to be a mere protuberance on the coast, not requiring a name, and since the village of eight or ten houses has none, nothing shows on the map but the spider line of road terminating at the sea. The village has no name, but home has two, a near and a far designation. On the island, and on the mainland nearby, it is called the Sea View Place, because in the earliest years of the century it was operated as a resort hotel. Mama calls it the House of 31 February, and that is on her stationery and is presumably used by her friends in New York and Philadelphia when they do not simply say, Mrs. Babcock's. Home is four floors high in some places, less in others, and is completely surrounded by a veranda. It was once painted yellow, but the paint, outside, is mostly gone now, and the house of 31 February is gray. Jason comes out the front door, with the little curly hairs on his chin trembling in the wind and his thumbs hooked in the waistband of his Levi's. Come on, you're going into town with me. Your mother wants to rest. Hey, tough, into Jason's Jaguar, feeling the leather upholstery soft and smelly. You fall asleep. Awake in town, bright lights flashing in the car windows. Jason is gone and the car is growing cold. You wait for what seems like a long time, looking out at the shop windows, the big gun on the hip of the policeman who walks past, the lost dog who is afraid of everyone, even when you tap the glass and call to him. Then Jason is back with packages to put behind the seat. Are we going home now? He nods without looking at you, arranging his bundles so they won't topple over, fastening his seatbelt. I want to get out of the car. He looks at you. I want to go in a store. Come on, Jason. Jason sighs. All right, the drugstore over there, okay? Just for a minute. The drugstore is as big as a supermarket, with long, bright aisles of glassware and notions and paper goods. Jason buys fluid for his lighter at the cigarette counter, and you bring him a book from a revolving wire rack. Please, Jason? He takes it from you and replaces it in the rack. Then when you are in the car again, takes it from under his jacket and gives it to you. It is a wonderful book, thick and heavy, with the edges of the pages tinted yellow. The covers are glossy, stiff cardboard, and on the front is a picture of a man in rags fighting a thing partly like an ape and partly like a man, but much worse than either. The picture is in color, and there is real blood on the ape thing. The man is muscular and handsome, with tawny hair, lighter than Jason's, and no beard. You like that? You are out of town already, and without the streetlights, it's too dark in the car almost to see the picture. You nod. Jason laughs. That's camp. Did you know that? You shrug, riffling the pages under your thumb, thinking of reading alone in your room tonight. You gonna tell your mom how nice I was to you? Uh-huh. Sure. You want me to? Tomorrow, not tonight. I think she'll be asleep when we get back. Don't you wake her up. Jason's voice says he will be angry if you do. Okay. Don't come in a room. Okay. The Jaguar says, down the road, and you can see the white caps in the moonlight now, and the driftwood pushed just off the asphalt. You got a nice, soft mommy, you know that? When I climb on her, it's just like being on a big pillow. 
You nod, remembering the times when, lonely and frightened by dreams, you have crawled into her bed and snuggled against her soft warmth, but at the same time angry, knowing Jason is somehow deriding you both. Home is silent and dark, and you leave Jason as soon as you can, bounding off down the hall and up the stairs ahead of him, up a second, narrow, twisted flight to your own room in the turret. I had to this story from a man who was breaking his word and telling it. How much it has suffered in his hands, I should say in his mouth, rather, I cannot say. In essentials it is true, and I give it to you as it was given to me. This is the story he told. Captain Philip Ransom had been adrift, alone, for nine days when he saw the island. It was already late evening when it appeared like a thin line of purple on the horizon, but Ransom did not sleep that night. There was no feeble questioning in his wakeful mind concerning the reality of what he had seen. He had been given that one glimpse, and he knew. Instead, his brain teemed with facts and speculations. He knew he must be somewhere near New Guinea, and he reviewed mentally what he knew of the currents in these waters, and what he had learned in the past nine days of the behavior of his raft. The island, when he reached it, he did not allow himself to if would in all probability be solid jungle a few feet back from the water's edge. There might or might not be natives, but he brought to mind all he could of the bizarre Malay and Tagalog he had acquired in his years as a pilot, plantation manager, white hunter, and professional fighting man in the Pacific. In the morning, he saw that purple shadow on the horizon again, a little nearer this time and almost precisely where his mental calculations had told him to expect it. For nine days there had been no reason to employ the inadequate paddles provided with the raft, but now he had something to row for. Ransom drank the last of his water and began stroking with a steady and powerful beat, which was not interrupted until the prow of his rubber craft ground into beach sand. Morning. You are slowly awake. Your eyes feel gummy, and the light over your bed is still on. Downstairs there is no one. So you get a bowl and milk and puffed sugary cereal out for yourself and light the oven with a kitchen match so that you can eat and read by its open door. When the cereal is gone, you drink the sweet milk and crumbs in the bottom of the bowl and start a pot of coffee, knowing that will please Mother. Jason comes down, dressed but not wanting to talk, drinks coffee and makes one piece of cinnamon toast in the oven. You listen to him leave the stretched buzzing of his car on the road, then go up to Mother's room. She is awake, her eyes open, looking at the ceiling, but you know she isn't ready to get up yet. Very politely, because that minimizes the chances of being shouted at, you say, How are you feeling this morning, Mama? She rolls her head to look. Strung out. What time is it, Tacky? You look at the little folding clock on her dresser. Seventeen minutes after eight. Jason, go. Yes, just now, Mama. She is looking at the ceiling again. You go back downstairs now, Tacky. I'll get you something when I feel better. Downstairs, you put on your sheepskin coat and go out on the veranda to look at the sea. There are gulls riding the icy wind and very far off, something orange bobbing in the waves, always closer. A life raft. You run to the beach, jump up and down, and wave your cap. Over here! Over here. The man from the raft has no shirt, but the cold doesn't seem to bother him. He holds out his hand and says, Captain Ransom. And you take it, 
and are suddenly taller and older. Not as tall as he is, or as old as he is, but taller and older than yourself. Tackman Babcock, Captain. Pleased to meet you. You were a friend in need there a minute ago. I guess I didn't do anything but welcome you ashore. The sound of your voice gave me something to steer for while my eyes were too busy watching that surf. Now you can tell me where I've landed and who you are. You are walking back up to the house now, and you explain to Ransom about you and Mother, and how she doesn't want to enroll you in the school here because she is trying to get you into the private school your father went to once, and after a time there is nothing more to say, and you show Ransom one of the empty rooms on the third floor where he can rest and do whatever he wants. Then you go back to your own room to read. Do you mean that you made these monsters? Made them? Dr. Death leaned forward, a cruel smile playing about his lips. Did God make Eve, Captain, when he took her from Adam's rib? Or did Adam make the bone and God alter it to become what he wished? Look at it this way, Captain. I am God and nature is Adam. Ransom looked at the thing who grasped his right arm with hands that might have circled a utility pole as easily. Do you mean that this thing is an animal? Not an animal, the monster said, wrenching his arm cruelly. Man. Dr. Death's smile broadened. Yes, Captain, man. The question is, what are you? When I'm finished with you, we'll see. Dulling your mind will be less of a problem than upgrading these poor brutes. But what about increasing the efficacy of your sense of smell... Not to mention rendering it impossible for you to walk erect. Not to walk all four on ground, the beast man holding ransom muttered. That is the law. Dr. Death turned and called to the shambling hunchback ransom had seen earlier. Golo, see to it that Captain Ransom is securely put away. Then prepare the surgery. A car, not Jason's noisy Jaguar, but a quiet, large-sounding car. By heaving up the narrow, tight little window at the corner of the turret and sticking your head out into the cold wind, you can see it. Dr. Black's big one, with the roof and hood all shiny with new wax. Downstairs, Dr. Black is hanging up an overcoat with a collar of fur, and you smell the old cigar smoke in his clothing before you see him. Then Aunt May and Aunt Julie are there to keep you occupied, so that he won't be reminded too vividly that marrying Mama means getting you as well. They talk to you. How have you been, Tacky? What do you find to do out here all day? Nothing. Nothing? Don't you ever go looking for shells on the beach? I guess so. You're a handsome boy, do you know that? Aunt May touches your nose with a scarlet-tipped finger and holds it there. Aunt May is Mother's sister, but older and not as pretty. Aunt Julie is Papa's sister, a tall lady with a pulled-out, unhappy face and makes you think of him, even when you know she only wants Mama to get married again so that Papa won't have to send her any more money. Mama herself is downstairs now in a clean new dress with long sleeves. She laughs at Dr. Black's jokes and holds on to his arm, and you think how nice her hair looks and that you will tell her so when you're alone. Dr. Black says... How about it, Barbara? Are you ready for the party? And Mother says, 
Heavens no, you know what this place is like. Yesterday I spent all day cleaning, and today you can't even see what I did. But Julie and May will help me. Dr. Black laughs. <laughs> After lunch. You get into his big car with the others and go to a restaurant on the edge of a cliff with a picture window to see the ocean. Dr. Black orders a sandwich for you that has turkey and bacon and three pieces of bread. But you're finished before the grown-ups have started. And when you try to talk to Mother, Aunt May sends you out to where there is a railing with wire to fill in the spaces, like chicken wire, only heavier, to look at the view. It is really not much higher than the top window at home, maybe a little higher. You put the toes of your shoes in the wire and bend out with your stomach against the rail to look down. But a grown-up pulls you down and tells you not to do it, then goes away. You do it again, and there are rocks at the bottom which the waves wash over in a neat way, covering them up and then pulling back. Someone touches your elbow, but you pay no attention for a minute, watching the water. Then you get down, and the man standing beside you is Dr. Death. He has a white scarf and black leather gloves, and his hair is shiny black. His face is not tanned like Captain Ransom's, but white, and handsome in a different way like the statue of a head that used to be in Papa's library when you and Mother used to live in town with him, and you think Mama would say after he was gone how good-looking he was. He smiles at you, but you are no older. Hi. What else can you say? Good afternoon, Mr. Babcock. I'm afraid I startled you. You shrug. A little bit. I didn't expect you to be here, I guess. Dr. Death turns his back to the wind to light a cigarette he takes from a gold case. It is longer even than a 101 and has a red tip and a gold dragon on the paper. While you were looking down, I slipped from between the pages of the excellent novel you have in your coat pocket. I didn't know you could do that. Oh, yes. I'll be around from time to time. Captain Ransom is here already. He'll kill you. Dr. Death smiles and shakes his head. Hardly. You see, Tackman, Ransom and I are a bit like wrestlers. Under various guises, we put on our show again and again, but only under the spotlight. He flicks his cigarette over the rail, and for a moment your eyes follow the bright spark out and down and see it vanish in the water. When you look back, Dr. Death is gone, and you are getting cold. You go back into the restaurant and get a free mint candy where the cash register is, and then go to sit beside Aunt May again in time to have coconut cream pie and hot chocolate. Aunt May drops out of the conversation long enough to ask, Who is that man you were talking to, Tacky? A man. In the car, Mama sits close to Dr. Black, with Aunt Julie on the other side of her so she will have to. And Aunt May sits way up on the edge of her seat with her head in between there so they can all talk. It is gray and cold outside. You think of how long it will be before you're home again and take the book out. Ransom heard them coming and flattened himself against the wall beside the door of his cell. There was no way out, he knew, save through that iron portal. For the past four hours, he had been testing every surface of the stone room for a possible exit, and there was none. Floor, walls, and ceiling were of cyclopean stone blocks, the windowless door of solid metal locked outside. Nearer. He tensed every muscle and knotted his fists. Nearer. The shambling steps halted. There was a rattle of keys, and the door swung back.
Like a thunderbolt of purpose, he dove through the opening. A hideous face loomed above him, and he sent his right fist crashing into it, knocking the lumbering beast man to his knees. Two hairy arms pinioned him from behind, but he fought free, and the monster reeled under his blows. The corridor stretched ahead of him with a dim glow of daylight at the end, and he sprinted for it. Then, darkness. When he recovered consciousness, he found himself already erect, strapped to the wall of a brilliantly lit room which seemed to share the characters of a surgical theater and a chemical laboratory. Directly before his eyes stood a bulky object, which he knew must be an operating table, and upon it, covered with a sheet, lay the unmistakable form of a human being. He had hardly had time to comprehend the situation when Dr. Death entered, no longer in the elegant evening dress in which Ransom had beheld him last, but wearing white surgical clothing. Behind him limped the hideous Golo, carrying a tray of implements. Ah, seeing that his prisoner was conscious, Dr. Death strolled across the room and raised a hand as though to strike him in the face, but when Ransom did not flinch, dropped it, smiling. My dear Captain... You are with us again, I see. I was hoping for a minute there, Ransom said levelly, that I was away from you. Mind telling me what got me? A throne club, or so my slaves report. My baboon man is quite good at it. But aren't you going to ask about this charming little tableau I have staged for you? I wouldn't give you the pleasure. But you are curious, Dr. Death smiled his crooked smile. "'I shall not keep you in suspense. "'Your own time, Captain, has not come yet, "'and before it does I am going to demonstrate my technique to you. "'It is so seldom that I have a really appreciative audience.' "'With a calculated gesture he whipped away the sheet "'which had covered the prone form on the operating table. "'Ransom could scarcely believe his eyes. "'Before him lay the unconscious body of a girl, "'a girl with skin as white as milk "'and hair like the sun seen through mist.' "'You are interested now, I see,' Dr. Death remarked dryly. "'And you consider her beautiful. "'Believe me, when I have completed my work, "'you will flee screaming if she so much as turns "'what will no longer be a face toward you. "'This woman has been my implacable enemy since I came to this island, "'and the time has come for me to—' "'He halted in mid-sentence "'and looked at Ransom with an expression of mingled slyness and gloating.' "'for me to illustrate something of your own fate, shall we say?' "'While Dr. Death had been talking, "'his deformed assistant had prepared a hypodermic. "'Ransom watched as the needle plunged into the girl's almost translucent flesh, "'and the liquid in the syringe, "'a fluid which by its very color suggested the vile perversion of medical technique, "'entered her bloodstream. "'Though still unconscious, the girl sighed, "'and it seemed to Ransom that a cloud passed over her sleeping face "'as though she had already begun an evil dream.' Roughly, the hideous Golo turned her on her back and fastened in place straps of the same kind as those that held Ransom himself pinned to the wall. "'What are you reading, Tacky?' Aunt May asked. "'Nothing.' "'You shut the book.' "'Well, you shouldn't read in the car. It's bad for your eyes.' Dr. Black looked back at them for a moment, then asked Mama, "'Have you gotten a costume for the little fellow yet?' "'For Tacky?' Mama shook her head, making her beautiful hair shine, even in the dim light of the car. No, nothing. It will be past his bedtime. Well, you'll have to let him see the guests anyway, Barbara. No boy should miss that. And then the car was racing along the road out to Settler's Island. And then you were home.
Ransom watched as the loathsome creature edged toward him. Though not as large as some of the others, its great teeth looked formidable indeed, and in one hand it grasped a heavy jungle knife with a razor edge. For a moment, he thought it would molest the unconscious girl, but it circled around her to stand before Ransom himself, never meeting his eyes. Then, with a gesture as unexpected as it was frightening, it bent suddenly to press its hideous face against his pinioned right hand at a great shuddering gasp ran through the creature's twisted body. Ransom waited, tense. Again that deep inhalation, seeming almost a sob. Then the beast man straightened up, looking into Ransom's face but avoiding his gaze. A thin, strangely familiar whine came from the monster's throat. "'Cut me loose,' Ransom ordered. "'Yes, this I came to. Yes, master.' The huge head, wider than it was high, bobbed up and down. Then the sharp blade of the machete bit into the straps holding Ransom. As soon as he was free, he took the blade from the willing hand of the beast man and freed the limbs of the girl on the operating table. She was light in his arms, and for an instant he stood looking down at her tranquil face. "'Come, master,' the beast man pulled at his sleeve. "'Bruno knows a way out. Follow Bruno.' A hidden flight of steps led to a long and narrow corridor, almost pitch dark. "'No one used this way,' the beast man said in his harsh voice. "'They not find us here.' "'Why did you free me?' Ransom asked. There was a pause, then almost with an air of shame, the great twisted form replied, "'You smell good, and Bruno does not like Dr. Death.' Ransom's conjectures were confirmed. Gently he asked, "'You were a dog before Dr. Death worked on you, weren't you, Bruno?' "'Yes,' the beast man's voice held a sort of pride. "'A Saint Bernard. I have seen pictures.' "'Dr. Death should have known better than to employ his foul skills on such a noble animal,' Ransom reflected aloud. "'Dogs are too shrewd in judging character, but then the evil are always foolish in the final analysis.' Unexpectedly, the dogman halted in front of him, forcing Ransom to stop, too. For a moment, the massive head bent over the unconscious girl. Then there was a barely audible growl. "'You say, Master, that I can judge. Then I tell you Bruno does not like this female Dr. Death calls Talar of the Long Eyes.'" You put the open book face down on the pillow and jump up. "'hugging yourself and skipping bare heels around the room. "'Marvelous! Wonderful! "'But no more reading tonight. Save it, save it. "'Turn the light off, and in the delicious dark "'put the book reverently away under the bed, "'pushing aside pieces of the Tinker Toy set "'and the box with the filling station game cards. "'Tomorrow there will be more, and you can hardly wait for tomorrow. "'You lie on your back, hands under head, covers up to chin, "'and when you close your eyes you can see it all. The island, with jungle trees swaying in the sea wind. Dr. Death's castle lifting its big, cold grayness against the hot sky. The whole house is still. Only the wind and the Atlantic are out. The familiar sounds. Downstairs, Mother is talking to Aunt May and Aunt Julie, and you fall asleep. You are awake. Listen. Late. It's very late. A strange time you have almost forgotten. Listen. So quiet it hurts. Something... Something. Listen, on the steps, you get out of bed and find your flashlight, not because you were brave, but because you cannot wait there in the dark. There is nothing in the narrow, cold little stairwell outside your door. 
nothing in the big hallway of the second floor. You shine your light quickly from end to end. Aunt Julie is breathing through her nose, but there is nothing frightening about that sound. You know what it is. Only Aunt Julie, asleep, breathing loud through her nose. Nothing on the stairs coming up. You go back to your room, turn off your flashlight, and get into bed. When you are almost sleeping, there is the scrabbling sound of hard claws on the floorboards and a rough tongue touching your fingertips. Don't be afraid, Master. It is only Bruno. And you feel him, warm with his own warm and smelling of his own smell, lying beside your bed. Then it is morning. The bedroom is cold, and there is no one in it but yourself. You go into the bathroom, where there is a thing like a fan, but with hot electric wires, to dress. Downstairs, Mother is up already with a cloth thing tied over her hair, and so are Aunt May and Aunt Julie, sitting at the table with coffee and milk and big slices of fried ham. Aunt Julie says, Hello, Tacky, and Mother smiles at you. There is a plate out for you already, and you have ham and toast. All day, the three women are cleaning and putting up decorations, red and gold paper masks Aunt Julie made to hang on the wall, and funny lights that change color and go around. And you try to stay out of the way and bring in wood for a fire in the big fireplace that almost never gets used. Jason comes, and Aunt May and Aunt Julie don't like him, but he helps some and goes into town in his car for things he forgot to buy before. He won't take you this time. The wind comes in around the window, but they let you alone in your room, and it's even quiet up there because they're all downstairs. Ransom looked at the enigmatic girl incredulously. You do not believe me, she said. It was a simple statement of fact without anger or accusation. You'll have to admit it's pretty hard to believe, he temporized. A city older than civilization buried in the jungle here on this little island? Talar said tonelessly, when you were as he, she pointed at the dogman, is now. Lemuria was queen of the sea. All that is gone except my city. Is not that enough to satisfy even time? Bruno plucked at Ransom's sleeve. Do not go, master. Beastmen go sometimes. Beastmen Dr. Death does not want. Few come back. They are very evil at that place. You see... A slight smile played about Talar's ripe lips. Even your slave testifies for me. My city exists. How far? Ransom asked curtly. Perhaps half a day's travel through the jungle. The girl paused as though afraid to say more. What is it? Ransom asked. You will lead us against Dr. Death. We wish to cleanse this island, which is our home. Sure, I don't like him any more than your people do. Maybe less. Even if you do not like my people, you will lead them? If they'll have me. But you're hiding something. What is it? You see me, and I might be a woman of your own people. Is that not so? They were moving through the jungle again now, the dogman reluctantly acting as rear guard. Very few girls of my people are as beautiful as you are, but otherwise, yes. And for that reason I am high priestess to my people, for in me the ancient blood runs pure and sweet, but it is not so with all. Her voice sunk to a whisper. When a tree is very old and yet still lives, sometimes the limbs are strangely twisted. Do you understand? Tacky? Tacky, are you in there? Uh-huh. 
You put the book inside your sweater. Well, come and open this door. Little boys ought not to lock their doors. Don't you want to see the company? You open, and Aunt May's a gypsy with long hair that isn't hers, around her face, and a mask that is only at her eyes. Downstairs, cars are stopping in front of the house, and Mother is standing at the door dressed in day-glow robes that open way down the front, but cover her arms almost to the ends of her fingers. She is talking to everyone as they come in, and you see her eyes are bright and strange the way they are sometimes when she dances by herself and talks when no one is listening. A woman with a fish for a head and a shiny silver dress is Aunt Julie. A doctor with a doctor's coat and listening things and a shiny thing on his head to look through is Dr. Black. And a soldier in a black uniform with a pirate thing on his hat and a whip is Jason. The big table has a punch bowl and cakes and little sandwiches and hot bean dip. You pull away when the gypsy is talking to someone and take some cakes and sit under the table watching legs. There is music and some of the legs dance and you stay under there a long time. Then a man's and a girl's legs dance close to the table and there is suddenly a laughing face in front of you. Captain Ransom's. What are you doing under there, Tech? Come out and join the party. And you crawl out, feeling very small instead of older, but older when you stand up. Captain Ransom is dressed like a castaway in a ragged shirt and pants torn off at the knees, but all clean and starched. His love beads are seeds and seashells, and he has his arm around a girl with no clothes at all, just jewelry. Tech, this is Talar of the Long Eyes. You smile and bow and kiss her hand and are nearly as tall as she. All around, people are dancing or talking, and no one seems to notice you. With Captain Ransom on one side of Talar and you on the other, you thread your way through the room, avoiding the dancers and the little groups of people with drinks. In the room you and Mother use as a living room when there's no company, two men and two girls are making love with the television on, and in the little room past that, a girl is sitting on the floor with her back to the wall, and men are standing in the corners. Hello, the girl says. Hello to you all. She is the first one to have noticed you, and you stop. Hello. I'm going to pretend you're real. Do you mind... No. You look around for Ransom and Talar, but they are gone, and you think that they are probably in the living room, kissing with the others. This is my third trip. Not a good trip, but not a bad trip. But I should have had a monitor, you know, someone to stay with me. Who are those men? The men in the corners stir, and you can hear the clinking of their armor, and see light glinting on it, and you look away. I think they're from the city... They probably came to watch out for Talar, and somehow you know that that is the truth. Make them come out where I can see them. But before you can answer, Dr. Death says, I don't really think you would want to. And you turn and find him standing just behind you, wearing full evening dress and a cloak. He takes your arm. Come on, Tacky. There's something I think you should see. You follow him to the back stairs and then up and along the hall to the door of Mother's room. Mother is inside on the bed, and Dr. Black is standing over her, filling a hypodermic. As you watch, he pushes up her sleeve so that all the other injection marks show ugly and red on her arm, and all you can think of is Dr. Death bending over Talar on the operating table. You run downstairs, looking for Ransom, 
but he is gone, and there is nobody at the party at all except the real people. And in the cold shadows of the back stoop, Dr. Death's assistant, Golo, who will not speak but only stares at you in the moonlight with pale eyes. The next house down the beach belongs to a woman you have seen sometimes cutting down the dry fall remnant of her asparagus or hilling up her roses while you played. You pound at her door and try to explain, and after a while she calls the police. Across the sky, the flames were licking at the roof timbers now. Ransom made a megaphone of his hands and shouted, "'Give up! You'll all be burned to death if you stay in there!' But the only reply was a shot, and he was not certain that they had heard him. The Lemurian bowman discharged another flight of arrows at the windows. Talar grasped his arm. "'Come back before they kill you!' Numbly, he retreated with her, stepping across the massive body of the bullman, which lay pierced by twenty or more shafts. You fold back the corner of a page and put the book down. The waiting room is cold and bare, and although sometimes the people hurrying through smile at you, you feel lonely. After a long time, a big man with gray hair and a woman in a blue uniform want to talk to you. The woman's voice is friendly, but only the way teachers' voices are sometimes. I bet you're sleepy, Tackman. Can you talk to us a little still before you go to bed? Yes, the gray-haired man says. Do you know who gave your mother drugs? I don't know. Dr. Black was going to do something to her. He waves that aside. Not that. You know, medicine. Your mother took a lot of medicine. Who gave it to her? Jason? I don't know. The woman says, Your mother is going to be well, Tackman. But it will be a while, do you understand? For now you're going to have to live for a while in a big house with some other boys. All right. The man. Amphetamines. Does that mean anything to you? Did you ever hear that word? You shake your head. The woman. Dr. Black was only trying to help your mother, Tackman. I know you don't understand, but she used several medicines at once, mixed them, and that can be very bad. They go away, and you pick up the book and riffle the pages, but you do not read. At your elbow, Dr. Death says, What's the matter, Tacky? He smells of scorched cloth, and there's a streak of blood across his forehead, but he smiles and lights one of his cigarettes. You hold up the book. I don't want it to end. You'll be killed at the end. And you don't want to lose me. That's touching. You will, won't you? You'll burn up in the fire, and Captain Ransom will go away and leave Talar. Dr. Death smiles. But if you start the book again, we'll all be back. Even Golo and the Bull Man. Honest? Certainly. He stands up and tousles your hair. It's the same with you, Tacky. You're too young to realize it yet. But it's the same with you. And welcome back. There's so much I love about this one. How stories bleed over into our lives, sometimes making the boundaries between fiction and reality indecipherable. 
How people aren't always easily definable as good or bad. How at the beginning of the story, Tacky realizes after he's written his name in his sand that the waves will wash over it, dissolve it, destroying what we try to leave behind. How stories and books are like the tide on the beach. They rise, they fall, they rise again. And just like books, we can start again too. As Dr. Death said, it's the same for you. It's the same for you. But unlike books, our stories, our lives have not yet been erased by the ocean. They're still playing themselves out, and the end isn't so clear. So here's to us, and here's to the stories we're living. May they be thoughtful and worth telling. Speaking of starting over again, let's talk about Kin Liu's The Paper Menagerie, read by Raj and Kana. It's the story of a boy estranged from his dying mother, but I think most people will remember this as the one where the origami tiger kicked Obi-Wan Kenobi's ass and left everyone crying at work. Generally, people really enjoyed it and thought Rajan's reading was great. A few people did point out some of the mispronunciations of Chinese, and I do apologize for that. Hopefully, we'll do better next time. Generally, though, people really appreciated this one and were left asking for more by Kin Liu and Rajan Khanna. Like Aproct, who said, This story was just about perfect, magical but grounded in the reality with the cruelty of children and the aching beauty of realizing too late just how much you love someone. Even though I was forewarned, the tears came unbidden while I tried to stay on the road. Grokman said, I liked how the fantasy aspects of this were barely more than part of a character's feature list. We didn't have to sit through another story about how a new generation attempts to and finally learns the magic of the previous generation. I found it very gratifying that the boy didn't have the ability to breathe life into origami, nor even have the desire to acquire that ability. And Secret Pilgrim said, Another beautiful story showing the fantasy doesn't always have to be large and noisy, and the magic sometimes is more powerful for its subtlety. A bittersweet reminder that you will one day run out of tomorrows to tell the people you care about how much you care about them, so you'd better do it today. Thanks so much for those comments. We really love what you all have to say about our stories, so come ashore to the forum at forum.escapeartist.net and let us know what you thought of this week's story. If you like what we're doing, please consider visiting podcastle.org and making a donation. We rely on you, our audience, to pay our authors so we can continue to share great fantasy fiction like this story week after week. And as a special way of saying thank you, those of you who signed up as paid subscribers or who have donated $50 to us this year will receive the Alphabet Quartet, a collaboration of flash fiction by Tim Pratt, Jen Reese, Heather Shaw, and Greg Van Eekhout. So thanks again to everyone who's donated. Thanks also to those of you who've blogged, tweeted, written reviews on iTunes about us, or just told your friends the old-fashioned way. Thanks for spreading the good news of PodCastle, guys. We love you. This week, we're focusing that love on the Siglo Allen family, our featured donors. Chris Allen's a public school teacher, and the family of four listens to us, well, pretty much all the time, I'm told. They enjoy PodCastle because of the great mix of standard fantasy stories, and ones that play on aspects of current life, and particularly enjoyed, hey, the paper menagerie. Chris's son's senior project was to produce a series of podcasts featuring the work of his fellow student artists and musicians. He modeled much of his style from listening to all of us at Escape Artists, and if you want to hear them, they're at public.me.com slash chrisandchris, 
We'll have a link to that in our show notes. Just click on the Ratcast folder. I listened to the first one and it was a blast. Thanks so much for your donation, guys. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. On behalf of everyone here at Podcastle, the mad slush scientist herself, Anne Lucky, our half-monkey, half-sound producer, Peter Wood, and your ruggedly handsome hero and maniacal Dr. Death, Anna Schwend and myself, Dave Thompson. You can figure out who's who, although if you've ever heard Anna laugh, it should be pretty easy. We'll be back in a week when Rajan Khanna takes us on a trip around the world in a lot less than 80 days. Until then, this is Dave Thompson reminding you that you shouldn't read in the car. It's bad for your eyes. You should totally listen to Podcastle instead. See you next time. Podcastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it, but don't change it or sell it. Our theme music is by Shiva in Exile. You can find them at magnatune.com. You can discuss this episode of Podcastle or nearly anything else on our forums. Just visit forum.escapeartist.info. And if you like science fiction or horror, be sure to visit our sister podcasts, Escape Pod and Pseudopod. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend or post to your blog about it or consider donating via the PayPal link on our site. Neil Gaiman wrote, You couldn't trust fiction. What good were books if they couldn't protect you from something like that?